Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Gray Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics from the 1960s. Last episode, we took a break from our regular X-Men broadcast to review an old comic book featuring Angel versus Iron Man. Uh, we had guests Robbie McNiven on, and it was really a lovely discussion about his novels. Uh, before that breakout episode, we reviewed X-Men number 29, which is where we continue from today. In that issue, if you remember, the X-Men fought the super adaptoid. Mimic lost his powers and left the team. The threat of Factor 3 kind of is still looming in the distance. Uh, but this issue, we take a break from a lot of our regular subplots, and we have what they call a filler issue. A guest artist comes on board, and uh, we have a rather different story. <laughs> Today, we'll, we'll be talking a lot about that as we go. Uh, disclaimer, this issue is weird, uh, maybe the weirdest, and maybe the most problematic issue from the 60s that we've covered thus far. Uh, we are so thrilled to uh, present to you X-Men number 30, The Warlock Wakes. Uh, we have Gabriella back with us today, as well as uh, new co-host Justin, and uh, the incredible artist Adam Gorham is with us today. So let me have you each introduce yourselves. Um, I will have you use your pronouns, tell us who you are and kind of what you're doing, uh, anything you're excited about online right now. And then the question we'll have you answer today during your introduction is, what is your favorite Save the Princess story or Damsel in Distress story? And can you think of a story that kind of broke that mold for you, that lost that format, where the princess no longer needs saving? Uh, Gabriella, do you want to start us off? Sure. I'm Gabriella. My pronouns are she, her. And I have a blog called The Girl Who Sits, uh, where I talk about disability and um, generally just like being marginalized. And the X-Men, I've always been really connected to it or felt really connected to it because um, I think it does a good job of talking about marginalized identities and how that can feel to be part of those kinds of groups. Um, and uh, my favorite damsel in distress thing is also an unconventional one because I grew up, I was lucky enough to grow up in the 90s and I watched a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and she was very empowered in general, but as I got older, I kind of noticed that she couldn't really do a lot that she did without her friends. And so I really appreciate in those kinds of stories where not only was she saving herself a lot, but she was also letting her friends save her and saving her friends because really, unless they were all together, it was not that good of a story and it was not that good of an episode. So I really like that about it. Um, and I, yeah, that, that would be my favorite Save the Princess story. Even though she wasn't really a princess, she was very capable. I'm sorry, my dog is um, shaking in the background. Um, she is very empowered and everything, but she wasn't perfect. Nobody is. And so I liked that on her weekdays, uh, she wasn't above getting help from other people. Fantastic. Uh, Justin. Hello, so my name is Justin. Um, I go by he, him, and his. And I've been a longtime comic fan, pretty much as long as I can remember. Um, going to the question regarding the damsel in distress, um, the first one that I could think of that really broke the mold for me was um, Mulan. Um, that was probably the one movie that really stood out to me and really made a big impression on me. Just seeing someone kind of break the mold, join the battle, 
with um, the guys, break gender stereotypes, um, and kind of prove that she can kick ass with everybody else. And a lot of the side characters were really likable too. And um, there is a lot of realistic stuff that was covered, like um, the perils of war, like goes from a happy, upbeat song to suddenly village where there's all this death and destruction, you know, it's kind of like a slap back into reality. And um, yeah, that, that was probably one movie that really left an impression on me. Um, it's kind of funny because my boyfriend, um, he'd never seen the movie. So I just kind of gave him a hard time about never seeing it. So um, he wanted to see the live action one. And I told him like, no, you got to watch the cartoon one if you want to get introduced to it. <laughs> so that was kind of the first one that broke the mold. Um, the first example of damsel in distress that I can think of. I'm going to age myself a little bit here, but um, <laughs> the 1988 Felix the Cat movie was probably the first example I could think of. Like, the first I could remember. Um, <laughs> there was like this, honestly, that movie was a fever dream. And just looking back at it was kind of like, what did I just watch? <laughs> um, just because he was in a swamp. Um, then he's in a cave. Um, the princess who was captured at some point she was dancing in a bubble before she got before she was um, freed by Felix and the main villain basically looks like BDSM Mysterio <laughs> 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 which you know it just like looking back kind of explains a lot <laughs> and you but, turned and you turned gay at that very moment <laughs> <laughs> I mean <laughs> looking back now it's like oh but that's the first one I could think of. Honestly, the whole movie was a fever dream. I can't say what happened in it just because I wore the VHS tape out. <laughs> it became unwatchable. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and then Adam. Hi, uh, I'm Adam. I go by he, him, his. Um, and so the first, I was gave this some thought. And uh, uh, you, you mentioned game in the question. And it occurred to me that probably uh, Super Mario Brothers is maybe the longest running damsel in distress uh, thing that I was ever acquainted with, you know, playing Super or playing, you know, uh, Nintendo when I was a kid and later Super NES, like a, the through line throughout those games are that, um, you know, the princess needs to be rescued. Um, so that's probably my first, uh, whether I was conscious of it, of it or not my first experience with the damsel in distress concept. Um, but then, you know, there was uh, a ton of other movies where that was the case for me as well. Um, so it's a very, you know, well-worn trope for a lot of the stuff that I grew up watching. Um, and then, you know, there was a ton of stuff that I enjoyed as a kid that where, you know, the damsel didn't necessarily need saving, but she was kind of like, you know, like for instance, like you know, James Bond and all of his all of his Bond girls, and um, so I was like inundated with that kind of stuff without really thinking about it. And probably the first uh, uh, type of story that I came across when I was a kid that wasn't like that probably was the X Men cartoon, where uh, the women characters on the show were very much empowered and kicking ass and didn't need so they they were part of the team that was doing the saving um and so that's uh you know uh, 
one of the first instances that I can think of in my young life where I noticed a difference in that kind of uh, that kind of story. Um, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's really. Yeah, I was also going to say Buffy because um, I was a big Buffy fan growing up, and but Gabriella did a much better <laughs> job of explaining it than I could. But um, Buffy, Buffy was certainly up there for me. Sorry, Adam, but your princess is in another castle. That's a Super <laughs> Mario Brothers reference. Uh, my name is Chad. I'm using he, him pronouns. Uh, I'm actually just watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the first time. I literally started it around Thanksgiving. I'm in season two now. Uh, and it's amazing, much like we're analyzing 60s comics from a 2021 lens, it's amazing an analyzing something from just 20 years ago from that same lens. It's uh, There's a lot of problems. <laughs> it's, it's very like rapey and controlly. I um I feel like the first Save the Princess thing I became aware of, I grew up in a very small town in the Missouri Ozarks, and we had this local theater that did melodramas, the kind of place where you dress up and, or not dress up, the cast would dress up and the, the, the evil villain had the twirly mustache and the cape and the top hat, and the girl would get tied to the railroad tracks and the, the crowd would yell boo and hiss and you know, then the, the hero would come in on the, the, I'd say there's very Dudley do right. Uh, we have two Canadians in, a, in our, in our podcast today. So there's a, there's a Canadian reference. Uh, we have, uh, we have so many examples of those stories in comics as well. Uh, as I gave this some thought, I mean, every Disney movie prior to uh, uh, a certain point is all about the girl, if not being saved, then, uh, then needing marriage to be okay, right? <laughs> there's, there's all these examples. Sleeping Beauty has to be woken up with the kiss. Uh, in comic books, I was giving even, um, even comic books up until the 80s and 90s, we got a lot of these stories where Superman has to rescue Lois Lane and Spider-Man has to rescue Gwen Stacy and Mary Jane. There's an issue of uh, Daredevil number four back in the 60s where the purple man comes in and he can control you with just a word and he walks up to karen page who's daredevil's girlfriend and just says follow me you're mine now and she's like okay uh there's all these storylines where women are seen as kind of acquisitions and even worse stories where you get these really old creepy megalomaniacal villains who will capture the princess uh, or, or the female character and say, you know, you're going to be mine. I will keep you locked up until you love me. And I, I feel like we could list a thousand movies with that kind of plot line uh, right up to Gladiator. If you guys have seen the movie Gladiator, there's that kind of where he's after his own sister. Like, you're going to you're going to love me if it's the last thing I do. Uh, the Princess Bride has that storyline. We see it kind of over and over and over again. Uh, it's nice to see an era where we're seeing storylines change a little bit. Uh, 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 Adam, you referenced the X-Men cartoon. I feel like Storm and Rogue were a huge part of the team, but Jean was kind of the one that was always fainting in the background. We have kind of a running gag online about Jean fainting. And uh, in this issue today, we'll see that Jean becomes the damsel. And even when she's empowered, she still faints at the end. <laughs> so we're going to talk about that. Uh, but first, let's spend some time talking to uh, Mr. Adam Gorham about his incredible uh, career as an artist. Uh, Adam, tell us a little bit about your work and your history in comics, and then we'll discuss some of your Marvel work more specifically. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, I think I've been at this for over 10 years now. I started um, in the Toronto indie scene in around 2008-2009, and then uh, didn't really start doing uh, you know, uh, bigger, widely published stuff until about 2014. Um, 
so I had started out drawing uh, sword and sorcery comics with the with my with a friend of mine, and um, <clears throat> from there I did a uh, you know some inking jobs here and there and uh, uh, a crime comic called The Violent um, from Image and some stuff at Valiant. Um, but, it, but it was shortly after those two titles that I started doing some work at Marvel with um, first Rocket Raccoon and then uh, the New Mutants. Um, and then, gosh, it's you know, kind of a blur, but uh, here I am now uh, uh, working on, um, you know, more superhero fare and um, uh, doing some writing as well. You, uh, you went from indie books to Marvel, which doing an indie book is a ton of work. I've done indie books. I've, I've been the writer on indie books. It's a lot, a lot, a lot of effort and coordination with no funding and no interest yeah. at the beginning. Uh, but that leap from indie to Marvel for many professionals is just like this idea of I've climbed the ladder. I'm at the top now. And of course, there's always more ladder to climb. But yeah. take, take us back to that day and time. How did you get into the uh, the Marvel work initially? Well, I think I was, um, I tend to think of it as being a part of a, a, a graduating class. So, you know, when I started out um, as an indie guy doing, working with, you know, uh, in the Toronto scene with, with people that were kind of coming up around the same time as I was and then meeting more artists um, in different spheres, I feel like that there are um, artists that I became pals with where we all just kind of steadily climbed the ladder in sync with one another. Um, so guys like Mike Walsh, Brian Lovell, uh, Ed Brisson, um, Matt Rosenberg, uh, you know, there's a bunch of people whose names I'm forgetting because I'm on the spot, but you know, we all kind of started out at similar stages and rose up in the ranks. And as, uh, you know, as it tends to happen when one person kind of gets their foot in the door, they'll hold it up open for, their contemporaries or people that they like working with. Um, and so I, you know, when I started going to American conventions and basically making myself known to, uh, you know, uh, people who were, you know, editors or working with editors, um, that's when, you know, like uh, Marvel was, uh, and, you know, Marvel and I guess the big two really, you know, they have, they'll do these events and they have like a bunch of books that they have to staff. And so they just kind of, you know, inhale a uh, new talent. And that's how a lot of people get their starts at these publishers is either doing fill-ins, doing one-shots, doing crossover tie-ins and that sort of thing. Um, and so for a while, it seemed like I was just like on the bubble for doing that. You know, I was meeting people at shows that were looking at what I was doing and giving me their card and so on. Um, but it didn't really take, and it wasn't until I was doing my book at Image with uh, Ed Brisson, uh, The Violent, um, that it, I guess it must have turned some heads because, you know, that wrapped and uh, I um, uh, uh, got a, an email from Marvel's talent guy asking if I was interested in doing work for them. And it wound up being for this Rocket Raccoon book that had uh, a, like a noir detective bent to it. Um, so basically, you know, uh, a hard-boiled rocket raccoon story, which, you know, after coming off of a very grounded crime comic, maybe made me look like a perfect fit for it. Um, so I got to work with Al Ewing on that. 
Um, so it was pretty cool. Like it was a, an astronomical leap for me, you know, like I, Marvel was the place that I, or one of the places that I've always wanted, you know, they're a destination. And um, so I was very excited uh, to get the opportunity, but to not just get a job, but to like start a new number one on a new book was super, super exciting. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, that's the story in a nutshell in that like, you know, I had sort of put myself out there for a number of years and finally got lucky with an opportunity. Um, but yeah. It is such a, it is such a lesson in tenacity. I think we, we mentioned as we talk about people who pursue their passions it takes so much effort to climb. And then even when you've got a name for yourself to find continual work after that is such a, is such a challenge for so many. Uh, for those who haven't read Rocket, let me pitch it to you quickly. It's a, it's a six issue series about Rocket Raccoon in space, very film noir. The, uh, the plot of the, the, uh, the evil ingenue, I don't know the right term, the, the girl that walks in you know, and says, I need your help, but she turns out to be bad is an otter. <laughs> Like there's all these fluffy animal characters, evil beavers. Uh, for the X-Men fans out there, we get to work in the Excalibur foes, the TechNet, to Gatecrasher and the TechNet, which are such bizarre, delicious, uh, campy foes uh, who have incredible power sets. And we love Al Ewing. Uh, X-Fans love Al Ewing. He's doing such an incredible job in the X industry and across the board. That man can write so much. And he's doing some incredible work with transgender characters in comics right now uh, as well in, in Defenders and in Mortal Hulk. Uh, we uh, were huge fans of him. What was it like to work with Al and what was it like to draw <laughs> the, uh, the bizarre tech net? It was, uh, it was, you know, Al is delightful. Um, I've met him a couple times and he's, uh, you know, he's this um, uh, understated as, you know, one way of putting it. He, cause he's, he's a really big guy. Um, but he's very, you know, he has this gentle giant quality about him, the energy that he radiates. And so anytime I talk to him or ask him a question, he'll the same pose where he kind of crosses one arm over his chest and then, you know, a hand on his nose, like he's very, like he's, he's pondering in the moment. Um, uh, so, you know, super friendly and, um, uh, his scripts were, uh, you know, some of the most, I mean, with, with the story that we were telling, there was some of the funniest stuff that I had ever read. There was like a couple of moments in that series where I was in like, had tears streaming down my face because I was trying to, the script was so funny and I was trying to picture how I was going to put it all together on on, on the page. But um, yeah, just a, just an absolute blast. And um, uh, you know, I, I felt like I really gelled with what he was trying to do with this particular book. And, um, it, it, you know, like it was, and I was working with my friend, Mike Garland, who I had just worked with on um, The Violent with Colors. And so uh, I feel like the three of us really, you know, uh, had a nice thing going with, with what we wanted to do with the book and how it all came together. Um, but yeah, I'll, I was wonderful and I got to work with him briefly later on a, on a, on an issue of Immortal Hulk. Um, and so, you know, the same, obviously a very different mood for that book, but just the same, uh, vivid writer, just a lot of intelligence behind his scripts. So, um, somebody who I enjoyed working with and would love to work with again someday. 
And Immortal then, Hulk from front to back was incredible. The entire series was just amazing, breathtaking. Uh, I didn't feel like there was a hiccup along the way. It was perfectly executed. And your issue was so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a privilege to get to take part in it because it was a book that I was reading and was a huge fan of. So, um, you know, get getting to contribute to that uh, meant a lot to me. Um, but then, yeah, so drawing the TechNet, I mean, they were honestly... Uh, very unknown to me at the time. Like I hadn't been reading Excalibur growing up or so I was very unfamiliar with them as characters. And when I, um, when I got the chance to draw them, I, you know, tried to, I, I try to do this with, you know, as much as I can get away with, or as much as I feel it's needed, try to put my own, my own slant on the characters that I'm drawing. If I feel like if it's, if it's, you know, something that could add to the, to the book, but, um, yeah, so with the Technic, I tried to, you know, give them a little bit more menace just because of the, because of the, the story. Um, it was, you know, there, there's, you know, there's some grimness to it. It's, you know, it's hard boiled. It's, you know, so I tried to draw them with uh, a little more meanness than they had been depicted before. Um, but nevertheless, they're kind of characters that don't necessarily make sense in three dimensional space all the time. Uh, the TechNet um, is basically Alice in Wonderland on acid. For those of you that are unfamiliar, they're, yeah. <laughs> they're insane. Yeah. So there was a there was a few characters where I was you know I thought I every time I thought I had a handle on them, I'd get a script that would require me to draw a scene, and I was like, oh, these guys don't make sense anymore. I'm like, how do I make them make sense in this in this scene? So they were probably the most challenging part of the book, um, but you know, still very very fun. Um, and, you know, to my surprise, when we were making the book, they got a huge, you know, I realized as, as the book was coming out, just how many fans of the Technic there are. Um, so which was, you know, which was fun to discover for me. Yeah. Their powers are so weird. We also get to see Deadpool uh, team up with Rocket in, uh, in his series. Uh, and Deadpool and Rocket, frankly, should be like a permanent fixture. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they're a that bizarre was... combination. That wound up being maybe the most fun, that issue, the most fun to draw. But I remember not being excited about the prospect. Um, I got, I met Al for the first time at New York Comic Con. And we were talking about, we figured it would be about six issues, but if it went beyond that, where would we go? What could we do? Um, and, uh, you know, he threw a couple of things out there and he mentioned like, you know, we might have a guest character pop in uh, midway through the arc and, you know, who, and you know, who would I want? And I was thinking in terms of cosmic Marvel. And so I was like, well, maybe the silver surfer or maybe, maybe Thor shows up for some reason, that kind of thing. And he pauses and he goes, Oh, okay. Well, uh, you know, what about Deadpool? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I, was you know, I have nothing against a Deadpool, but I it's one of these characters that I noticed pops up everywhere, and I was like, "Well, that's fine." And I realized that I didn't actually have a choice in the matter. <laughs> um, he just asked to be nice. <laughs> I guess so, but um, it wound up being a very, very fun issue, and and it presented Deadpool in a light that I don't think, um, or at least at the time, uh, played against uh, you know the 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 off the wall goofiness of his character, you know? Um, so Al gave Deadpool a lot of pathos in our issue, which made it really, really cool. 
Um, now, af- after that, you got to work with your old friend, uh, Matt Rosenberg, you said, uh, on the series uh, New Mutants, Dead Souls. Now, for our fans out there, you may know this series. It's a uh, it's told during a time right before Hawksbox, right before the Krakoan era, where things felt very dire for the X-Men. Everything was kind of winding down. Characters were dying. Everybody kind of felt like it was the end before the big relaunch. And we get to see some of our favorite characters. Uh uh, Magic and Richter and Strong Guy and Wolvesbane and Boom Boom and Karma and Prodigy fighting zombies and frost giants and the transmode virus. And there is a lot of crazy history woven in and a lot of crazy uh, action and with a very, very shocking ending, frankly. I remember reading as a fan at the time, like, whoa, where are they going to go with this now? <laughs> uh, what was it like working with uh, with your friend, uh, Matt, on this? And uh, and tell us about your experience drawing these classic characters. Uh, the New Mutants, for me, um, uh, and I dare say most people involved with the book, it was, a, I mean, it was a tale of two cities. It was, you know, the best of times and the worst of times. Um, and it, like it's like uh, you know, there was um, you know Matt came in with a, a much bigger story and um, you know we that he I think later got to do with this uncanny run and stuff but initially there was like a big story that we wanted to tell and um, you know we just the X uh, yeah the world of the X Men can be kind of crazy like this I guess where it's like there's so many moving parts that you have to you know, play nice with other people's toys and, and stuff like that. So number one, it was super exciting to get to work on anything X-Men related. Um, and out of all the teams, the New Mutants is one of the teams that I had uh, you know, the least familiarity with to some extent. And I mean, our team was composed of uh, uh, its fair amount of X-Factor characters anyway. So it was this, it was an interesting, it was a motley crew of a New Mutants team. Um, and um, and I, you know, like I, I think that it was that kind of unwieldiness that made the book special, um, but also made it hard to pin down in a way. And, um, you know, I remember coming in wanting to, you know, strut my, my superhero chops, but there was also a, a horror element that they wanted to push um, or, or, or get across. And so... Um, it was very challenging for me as an artist to try and juggle both these both these things and try to inject, um, I guess, like superhero horror. And um, and you know, I was uh, uh, you know kind of trying to be two artists at once a lot of the time, which becomes a very very tricky thing. Um, but um, you know, like I I working with Matt he's one of the funniest people I know and he'd write these wonderful scenes where it was just not plot driven, but just the characters bouncing off of each other. And um, those were always just, you know, a joy to read and um, really fun to try and portray. And um, so I like, you know, there's like a brunch scene that was like, especially fun um, that, uh, that I look back on fondly. Sorry, my cat's running, wreaking havoc. Um, but, um, you know, like I, and it, but I think that, you know, uh, you know, Marvel for whatever reason, didn't always know what to make of the book. And so that made it a little, that added, uh, you know, uh, some challenges to, to what we could do, um, versus what we wanted to do, how far we could push things. Um, so, 
you know, I feel lucky in that, like, just in terms of the aesthetics, I got to do most of what I wanted. I got to design the outfits for the team. Um, I got to give Ileana an unconventional look uh, from apart from, you know, uh, the other ways that she's been depicted. Um, I wanted to take that much farther as the series progressed and um, have her, you know, go really hard goth as, as things got grimmer. Um, but, um, but there was only so far I could push that. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I, there are characters that I became really fond of in, in the, in the process, in, you know, in the, in the telling of the story. Um, and then as we were trying to wrap things up, like I remember being in suspense and how we were going to cap, um, you know, cap, cap our, our, our tail because we had a 12 issue story planned that then had to be done in six issues. Mm. Um, so I remember that, that last issue was, I was pretty much on the edge of my seat for that last script. Like, how is this going to come together? How is it not going to come together? Um, but I guess the wonderful thing about, you know, the X-Men and soap opera storytelling is that you can sort of leave lingering threads that you can pick up later. But, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of craziness in this book. I mean, X Men is large part soap opera, right? But we get to see yeah. wolves. We get to see Wolvesbane confronting Strong Guy for murdering her son. We get to see uh, Magic wrestling with the Dark Child version of herself. We get to see Karma as the leader of like a billion dollar corporation, and her evil twin is trying to take her down. Uh, and then you you drew the Transmode virus, like no one else has done since the since the Phalanx Covenant. Uh, it, it ends really eerily. I, I I mean, it's spoilers. It's a few years old, but. Many of the many of the members of the team are infected with the trans mode, which kind of takes over them. It's uh, mm. it's really smart, really really scary storytelling. And I think for those of us that are used to seeing our characters wind up at a particular place, this series left a lot of people with a sense of anxiety, much like you probably with that last script of like, oh my god, where is this going to go? Yeah, yeah. And there were aspects of of that last issue that I, you know, like I I wish that it could have been 40 pages because there was just a lot that I wanted to do visually with um with uh you know the, the team member. There's a lot of team members who are MIA throughout the story who then show up in the last issue. Um spoilers, I guess, as you said. Um but um there's but you know, there was only so much that I could really really do, but um yeah, there was so much more that I wanted to play around with, and uh, uh, you know, so what I, I think what I think what I managed to do was all right. <laughs> Who's your favorite X Men character, uh, hero, and villain of all time? Um, this is going to be this. Is, I mean, this isn't a uh, you know uh, an off the wall answer, but I grew up loving Wolverine, and I still do for the most part. Um, and then as far as villain goes, it's not something that I've given a lot of thought to. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought the juggernaut was super cool, although I didn't quite understand everything about him. Like I, the, you know, I, uh, so I, just, I need to let my cat out. <laughs> uh, while Adam's doing that, Justin and uh, Gabriella, do you guys have any questions you'd like to ask Adam? So you mentioned um, the six issue story for the new mutants was going to be a little bit longer um were there any characters that were going to appear that didn't you looked forward to drawing that you didn't get to draw um if there were i can't remember at the moment um 
you know, I, I remember being surprised that we were going to meet Dr. Strange in the story, although, you know, it made sense in hindsight. Um, so I was like excited to get to draw Dr. Strange. Um, uh, but um, I, you know, you always hope that like more X characters are just going to show up and do their thing. And that would have been neat. Um, and they, in a way, you know, like at, there was a, there, you know, there's a funeral scene where I got to put in people and, um, you know, Matt was like, you know, you know, we were being cheeky because he was like some of these characters put in whoever, even dead ones, wink, wink. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was fun just to get to see, you know, who, who read it and who was very confused by who was attending the funeral. Um, but, you know, like I, there was, there was, I guess, like, you know, plans to have, I guess, you know, a greater finale towards the end there um, that would have incorporated a lot of, a lot of X members. And um, so, you know, without any, without thinking of anybody specific, my understanding was that there'd have been a lot of people to play around with. Yeah. When I saw the funeral scene, that was my thought too, was like, isn't that person dead or (laughs) aren't they MIA? (laughs) So to see some, people you haven't seen in a while come back it was nice to see mm-hmm. although Even now if we it was a cameo in the background <laughs> now yeah. we live in an era where no one dies everyone's just resurrected <laughs> uh gabriella any questions from you yeah i always wonder with artists like do you have like a white whale like something you've always wanted to draw that you just haven't been asked to do yet or do you kind of just do it anyway and not do it for work? Like, is there anything that you think would be a really big challenge or one that you would really like to do? Um, there, there's a couple of things that I really wanted to do with my career, not necessarily character related, but you know, there's all the, you know, there's all the regular characters that you can think of. Like I'd love to draw Wolverine, Batman characters like that. Um, but um, I wanted, to, for the longest time, I wanted to adapt uh, a Space Odyssey as a graphic novel. And then I realized that Jack Kirby did it. <laughs> and there's no sense in doing anything that Kirby's already done. So I've kind of let go of that. Um, and um, there's a, you know, there's a, a, a Kurt Vonnegut novel that I'd love to adapt into a graphic novel that I think is, that is perfect for the medium. Um, and I, I don't want to say it out loud because uh, Ryan North's already done Slaughterhouse Five, <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this one quiet. But um, if I if I can make it happen, that's something that I'd very much like to do. Um, but as far as you know, characters, I I tend to get to play around with them either with commissions or just in my spare time. Um, and that's the beautiful thing about being able to draw whatever you can imagine, I guess, is that you don't always need to wait for permission. Um, and then earlier this year, like I'm a big Dune fan, and earlier this year I got to draw um, a Dune comic that's canon with the novel. So that was like a huge deal for me and um, and for my dad who introduced me to Frank Herbert's writing and, and, and Dune. Um, so that was, uh, you know, I gave him the, the cover art for the issue. So that was, um, uh, uh, a very nice Christmas gift for him last year, but um, you know, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I get, I, I have gotten some opportunities that are just very much up my alley. And um, like right now I'm, 
I love Godzilla. And right now I'm drawing a 40 page special that I got to write of Godzilla. It'll be out early next year. So I can't think of, uh, you know, I couldn't have asked for a better project except that I did ask for it. Since, uh, since doing this podcast and getting to interview professionals, I mean, I've been a big fan of your art, Adam, for a long time, which is why I reached out to you. But as I get to know you and hear your thoughts behind it, it, uh, it just strikes me how much research and character and thought and execution you're putting into this. I, I, uh, I'm a big fan. I can't wait to see the Godzilla book and everything else you have uh, coming out. You're, you're, uh, you're very good. Um, as we release your episode, I'll be putting some of your art up, uh, on, on, uh, Twitter and Instagram so people can see it as well and enjoy at least some of the key images. Um, but, uh, I can't, I can't wait to see what you have next, man. Hopefully we see you on an X book sometime. That'd be incredible. Or another X book, if you will. I would honestly be so great. Um, however, the people that they have on the books now are so stellar. They truly are. Like I, I am envious, but at the same time, I don't know if I hold a candle to what you know, uh, Pepe Larraz is doing and um, Mahmoud and, and, and uh, like, they're all just, <laughs> I weep at some of this X-Men art. It's crazy. Um, yeah. Marcus Toe and Bob Quinn. I mean, we can go on and on. It's really incredible, but th that's the thing about the X-Universe is there's uh there's always 15 books at the same time. So there's always room. <laughs> Fair enough. I also, but I, you mentioned Marcus. Marcus is one of my favorite people in comics. I just have to say that uh, he's, um, I just, I think super highly of him and he's one of, he's always been one of the nicest people in the industry to me. So I, anytime Marcus is doing well, I'm extremely happy. That's fantastic. We're going to have Marcus on. It's going to be a little while, but, uh, but that's happening soon. I'm excited. Cool. Uh, so with that, Adam, thank you so much for sharing uh, uh, some of your thoughts. Let's jump into uh, X-Men number 30 today. Um, we're going to begin with just kind of our reactions to the cover of the book. It's the Warlock Wakes. Uh, we see a man in a green starry cape shooting a blast at the X-Men who are cowering in a dungeon of some kind. What did you guys think about this cover? Did it catch your eye? Did you like it? I had a couple thoughts. Uh, my first is that cape is a awfully a little close to that flame. <laughs> <laughs> um, this the other thing... Should, this man should not be wearing a cape. We'll get to that in the issue. <laughs> Q in the mode. <laughs> But um, everybody else seems to be taken aback, whereas Bobby, it's like, hey, he's doing something. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was weird. The, the very first thing that I noticed when I looked at it was like, that's not a cape that looks like a children's blanket. Um, and I don't know if that was just like the style back then for capes, for like magician capes, but now they're so much cooler. Um, but anyway, I thought that was really weird. And I was trying to figure out what he was wearing underneath it. But that's, it was, it was the only thing I noticed was fashion. So I don't know. I guess I lived up to a stereotype there. That was something I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. That was something I had noted too was um, the Warlock Wakes. And it looks like he's wrapped in a blanket, <laughs> which is a big 2020 mood. <laughs> um, but even the color scheme too. He literally did wake in the issue too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I guess foreshadowing. <laughs> Adam, what did you think of this cover? Um, well, just on the subject of, of Warlock's look, they do look like comfy kids' pajamas. Mm -hmm. And I don't have a problem with that personally. I think that's great. Um, 
as an artist, that cape would be a pain to draw panel to panel with all of those stars and half moons and whatnot. Um, but I, and then I also dig like the, you know, your very typical uh, secondary color scheme, which denotes bad guy usually. Um, so your orange and your green. Um, but it's, you know, it's a fun cover. Like it, you know, it's indicative of its time. And, um, you know, like I like the, you know, your classic villain, your very non-specific energy blast coming out of the hands. Um, it's got a lot of energy. It's got motion. Uh, so I, it, for me, it works as a cover. Um, there, you know, I, I, I have to, yes, there's a fire hazard at the bottom there. And, I, you know, like it, <laughs> I can't ignore that because I'm very big on safety. But, um, you know, uh, apart from that, like there's... Uh, there's really it's working for me i gotta say you know i i like what i, I like what i'm seeing he's i'm definitely oh, oh go ahead i'm definitely intrigued to learn who this guy is yeah, yeah. he's literally straddling the fire like it's gonna burn him in the crotch he's, <laughs> he's standing over the fire <laughs> like was he sleeping next to the fire was he you know is he camping out in his dungeon <laughs> so also, uh, oh, okay, go ahead I'm sorry, I also just want to point out that Cyclops has fallen like in the I've fallen and I can't get up old man kind of way. Like he's adjusting his reading glasses, even though it's the visor thing. And yeah. I just I think that's hilarious. I love the I love that he looks like he's a hundred years old. <laughs> so let's introduce this character briefly. The warlock first appeared in Journey into Mystery number 96, which is the Thor run back then, before they called it Thor. It's a ridiculous and bizarre issue, as everything in the 60s was, frankly. Uh, there's a sarcophagus that they believe, first of all, sarcophagi are Egyptian and not from, uh, you know, England or, or Avalon. But there's a sarcophagus which they believe contains the body of the famous uh, wizard Merlin, you know, the guy from King Arthur's court. And when it's opened, the air wakes Merlin up, uh, quote unquote, on around Merlin. We, he's a madman who used his magic to manipulate Camelot until he faked his own death. And so he's been in this coma in this sarcophagus for centuries, and he immediately thinks he's a mutant when he wakes up, which he is not, we later learn. And he decides to confront the president. He rushes to Washington, D.C., uh, but he does not re recognize JFK. There's a panel where JFK walks by him and he goes, that man's too young to be the president. I have to keep looking. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. So Thor attacks him. Uh, Merlin starts using buildings. He literally launches the uh, the, the Washington DC monument, you know, the big phallic building that looks like a spear. He throws it at Thor. But when Thor changes shape back into the meager doctor, Donald Blake, Merlin thinks that Thor has shape-changing powers and I could never beat this guy. So he just takes himself back into the sarcophagus and he puts himself back to sleep because, you know, this guy's too powerful. So we'll learn in this issue that Thor is off in space uh, and Merlin's psychic powers have alerted him that it's now safe to emerge from the sarcophagus once again. <laughs> he, he, uh, he's going to call himself the warlock and try to, try to conquer the planet. Uh, he's a bizarre character. We later learn, by the way, in continuity, he's not the actual Merlin. He's just a, a wizard guy who pretended to be Merlin for a while. So uh, let me hear your reactions from that first appearance of his. Any thoughts from you guys? Um, when I saw the cover um, and saw Warlock, I'm like, okay, this isn't the Technarch dude or um, <laughs> Golden Space guy. <laughs> um, 
And reading into the issue and seeing the Merlin backstory, I was kind of like, is this guy tied to the other world Merlin? You know, wouldn't be surprised if Claremont went back and was, you know, brought back an obscure character. But reading into the character when he was not related to any of that, it was like, okay, it's this guy. <laughs> <laughs> He's later known as the Mahayogi. We're going to see him again in the X-Men books uh, around number 47. And he calls himself the Mahayogi, which is amazing as well. Uh, uh, Adam and Gabrielle, any thoughts about that Thor story before we jump in? Um, I, I throughout this whole, this whole issue felt like an old episode of Star Trek to me, just a very, you know, adventure of the week deal, which I guess this was. Um, but my favorite thing about what stuck with me is the fact that he went into hiding because he thought that he was bested and only came out because he believed Thor to be away and Thor wouldn't catch, you know, it's like Thor wouldn't find him if he just went by a different handle. Like there's just something like there's, you know, like it's like, you know, like a deadbeat dad grifter vibe that I think is truly delightful about this guy. Well, you know, I'm going to come out while the cat's away and I'm going to get up to get up to mischief. That's like my number one takeaway about this villain. Um, and I, I kind of wish that there was, I, I, you know, like I really like just really, you know, skeezy one note characters like that. Cause they're just, they crack me up. Yeah, he, uh, he is very ridiculous and frankly, very forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's jump in. We uh, we see that our regular penciler, Werner Roth, is off on vacation this issue, or he's busy with other commitments. We see this often in, in comic book runs where an artist is drawing month after month. They need a month off and someone else comes and pitches in. Uh, uh, in fact, Adam, you may have done that on an issue of The Immortal Hulk we just talked about, when people need to take a break and they need to bring someone else in to help. Uh, in this case, we get a completely different narrative style, although we do have the same writer, uh, Roy Thomas. So this book is from March 1967. Our credits are uh, Roy Thomas as writer, Jack Sparling as uh, penciler, John Tardiglione as inker, Artie Simic as letterer, and of course we have the always mention of Irving Forbush at the bottom, but he's listed as the manicurist in this issue. Uh, that's a fictional Marvel guy that they just throw into the credits for fun sometimes. Um, as the issue opens, the X-Men have been training in the danger room, and Merlin, <laughs> the issue opens, we have this giant hand with finger lasers coming out, uh, and the X-Men are like, oh no, uh, Merlin has somehow sensed, or the Warlock has somehow sensed that Jean Grey is this powerhouse and she's clearly beautiful and also a teenager. So he decides he wants her. <laughs> he opens some sort of mystic portal and starts pulling her through. Uh, the X-Men are all trying to hold on. Uh, the angel comes the closest. So as Jean passes through the portal, Angel uh, soon follows and when Jean arrives at her destination with where the warlock has summoned her, she sees that Professor X is there and has already been captured by the warlock. So he has built this enormous underground base full of uh, technology and magic working together. And uh, he is bringing the X-Men there, not only to make the Jean his mental slave and queen, but to show the X-Men who's boss because he sees himself as a mutant superior to them. Uh, let me let me turn this over to you guys. Let me hear some of your thoughts on these opening pages. Uh, with it just is such a bizarre, abrupt opening with this giant hand coming in. Uh, what did you think? Um, looking at the first page, I'm wondering why he's hanging off of a wall with the other hand. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 
it also just kind of felt abrupt. Like if you're reading this immediately after 29, it just kind of feels like a weird tone shift, if that makes sense. Just because you have this like conclusion where, you know, another story ends, but then randomly they're just being kidnapped. Next did, issue. Did you notice the arrow pointing to uh, to the warlock says, who is the warlock? And what phantasmagorical fate does he plan for the X-Men? Hang loose, Tiger, because the answer to that is really going to grab you. Fun, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. giant hand. <laughs> I thought, so I realized, Justin, when you said that, I misinterpreted the first, like, page. And I thought it was two separate, like, things. Like, maybe that was him, like, opening up the sarcophagus or whatever he was in and then reaching out at a different time but no like it's a connected drawing so he legitimately is like holding on to a weird stone slab edge of a wall thing with one hand and reaching out with the other and that's so funny and I love just the way that like the writers talk like it's so unusual and so 60s but like it honestly reminds me of Buffy like the way that she'll be like I'm Buffy and your history like it's so <laughs> odd now but it was but when you like read it a lot it's like really charming you know like it's so unusual it's well with the opening too um there's always two voices I hear with the opening page it's either Stanley which R.I.P or um the Batman 60s opening voice like tune in next time <laughs> So like, um, depending on the issue. <laughs> now, our fill-in penciler this issue is uh, is Jack Sparling. We have uh, we have two Canadians here. Justin and Adam are both from Canada, as was Jack Sparling. He was from Manitoba. Uh, Jack Sparling worked a long time in comics and in comic strips, but he only drew nine issues ever for Marvel. And that was spanned between like 23 years of history. I mm. believe this was his first Marvel work in 1967. Uh, he worked for decades for different companies and died in 1997. So you're not going to see a lot of him in the X-Men or in other places, but he has a very different art style than Werner Roth does. We see a lot of crazy blocky panels. Uh, Werner Roth is known very much for just like four or six panel pages, but the panels in this issue go kind of crazy all over the place. It's a lot of fun. Uh, what did you think of the art uh, in this, Adam? The Overall, I thought it was fine, like certainly indicative of its time, but um... I uh, like the first page was actually a little hard to decipher and I see why the, the narration has to do some of the heavy lifting, you know, like if, if I'm not told that this is taking place in the danger room, I, I'd have no way of knowing because you can't, you can't see any danger room or anything like that for like at all in these opening pages. Um, they're very, you know, this opening sequence is very surreal and I have to imagine uh, you know, the script might have been either very daunting or uh, maybe even a little difficult to interpret just because of the, the nature of, of like the, the magical nature of what's taking place. You know, you have like a metaphysical hand pulling Gene through the air. Um, and I, so when I, when I looked at this first page, like I interpreted it as like the warlock rose out of a sarcophagus and literally the first thing he did was tried to abduct this teenage girl, um, which I found very, very amusing. And I liked that the narrator called me Tiger. It made me feel cool in a way, you know. <laughs> um, I can get down with that. But, um, you know, just it's 
just kooky right off the start. And I, I saw, I, I appreciated that. Um, and it's been a while since I have read a, you know, read an older comics like this and um, forgot just how, how involved uh, the, you know, the, the narrative caption boxes are and, um, and how they're sometimes used to lead the eye either through the page or to certain details that they don't want the reader to miss, you know? So you have a few caption boxes that are literally arrows pointing to where they need you to be, you know, your eye to be following. Um, and in some days, some, you know, in certain cases, it's a little, it's, it's redundant to what's going, you know, what's being shown on the page. Um, but in other cases, like in the, you know, like in the instance where they say they're training in the danger room, um, you know, it's, it's a little more vital uh, and helps decipher what's going on. Um, but there's a lot of good stuff here in terms of just, you know, actual drawing. Uh, I'm, you know, all of the characters, um, you know, like all, there's a lot of great body language. Uh, they all look like they're supposed to look like, um, you know, so I, without having read the previous issue, this wasn't very jarring for me, but I, you know, as somebody who reads comics, I, I do understand that like, you know, a fill-in guy can take, you know, it can take, it doesn't always, it doesn't always sit well upon first reading, but um, art-wise, no, I think the, I think it's like, you know, finally drawn throughout um, some of, especially in the earlier sequences, the panel compositions are, are very interesting. Um, and I can, I, I got the impression that they're trying to really capture the, the strange nature of, of what the warlock is up to. So the warlock, the warlock in this issue comes across to me like, uh, like a very Hugh Hefner type character. He's older. He thinks he's just the greatest fucking thing he's ever given to anyone. He's (laughs) He's dressed in clothing. That's way too tight. He's already had six or seven marriages and his 20 year old girlfriend just broke up with him. And now he sees some 18 year old girl. And it is important to note Jean Grey is in college here. So she is at least consenting, but he is not, consent he is not asking for consent but he just kind of zaps her and he's like you are going to love me female because look how powerful i am uh, he's working very hard to impress her uh he's despicable and someone needs to kick him right in the nuts <laughs> like before we even begin this issue uh well, it's, it's funny to note that they don't have a as far as i could tell there's not a pre-existing relationship between he he and gene or he and the x-men like it's just he's plucked her out of obscurity yeah, like how did how did he find her? I think he just sensed her. He has really formidable mental powers here, right? He can block Professor X. So maybe he sensed how powerful Gene is hmm. and was kind of attracted to that. I think that's a possibility. Uh, but I think I think it's kind of meant to be read between the lines because this guy believes he's a mutant and maybe he just went to the mutant place and saw the one girl and said, <laughs> she's mine. <laughs> Uh, Gabriella, do you want to take over pages uh, four through seven for us? Give us uh, give us a summary here. Yeah, sure. So um, she, Jean, ends up finding Professor X with in like whatever weird non placed area because you can't tell where it is um, that um, he took her. And um, on page four, he kind of says like, "I'm." I, you are lovely. I, I spoke to you harshly, even though he didn't really say anything. And then he puts her in a trance and 
he brings so you end up being like around this like greenery like it's like a earthly area um and uh also just want to point out real quick that i've of course i'm going to notice this that when they land um professor x is in a wheelchair but then um uh the warlock proceeds to like pick him up and carry him around it's so odd why why <laughs> he has a chair with wheels it doesn't make sense maybe there um, was a long flight of stairs and no elevator or maybe the warlock is just an asshole <laughs> you're right i think it actually i think see like i think that's funny for him to be like you can't have your real drama here you're at like i think that's funny um <laughs> but so anyway then he brings down some winged horses and I spent a while trying to figure out what the uh, plural of Pegasus is, and it's Pegasi. Um, and so uh, Warren ends up being revealed to be there, and um, it's because they were holding hands. Um, and it wasn't part of the Warlock's plan initially to have Warren be there, which I find interesting. And um, she says his name. And he realizes, Warren realizes that Gene wouldn't say his name unless there was something wrong. So um, obviously Gene is in a trance and he's kind of figured that out. And then they go to a cave that is guarded by like old medieval knights with Tommy guns, um, which is a little anachronistic to say the least. <laughs> and um, there's a bunch, they end up going in and there's a bunch of like, military equipment and then a full-scale replica of um like a medieval castle with like radar and stuff on it so obviously meant to be as formidable and scary as possible um and then professor x is in several different seating arrangements and they all are like they go in on these winged horses and then they end up on these like weird sled things and it just seemed really fun. I'm not gonna lie to you. I was like, wow, what how fun would this be to like go down this weird like ramp thing? I don't know. I thought it was I thought it looked really cool. Um and then he ends up like doing a villain speech where he just like tells them who he was, the backstory that we already talked about. Um, and he his whole initial like idea is to turn the minds of everybody backward, as he says, so that they don't know science and they don't have scientific weapons or skill to overcome him. And then he's going to be the emperor of the world. So just like, you know, typical Tuesday stuff, just trying to, trying to take over. No big deal. Um, he's a, he's decaf Dr. Doom here. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also, I also love how initially like, immediately professor x is like oh my gosh if i just like to ask him questions about what stuff is he's totally gonna tell me like i don't even have to try to trick him into telling me i can just be like what's that and he's like oh that's a machine that's gonna make everybody forget science and i think that's really funny too now this the whole um oh sorry go ahead justin this um whole merlin trying to turn back the minds of everybody seems very morgan lefay like um Avengers volume three, like kind of that vibe where everybody kind of re got reverted back to um, the medieval times. I'm pretty sure he and Morgan Le Fay went to prom together. Yeah, but it also kind of amused me too how like we're seven pages in and it, it was just 
them trans transporting. It starts with the team getting kidnapped. Like, um, like every mentioned, they're on the horses, they're on the bikes. Like, we're already seven pages in, and it's just commute. <laughs> which I noticed with the horses too. He said um, they were mutant horses, which you know, kind of sinister vibes here. <laughs> So he, um, cre- he created these horses. He put wings on. And if you notice, they have unicorn horns too. Like he, uh, he there's, so I think, I think they're technically alicorns if they have horns and wings. Uh, Marvel has a long history of this, actually. Valkyrie from the Defenders and Black Knight from the Avengers uh, and Black Knight from the Masters of Evil all have winged horses uh, that are created by science. They just like graft random wings onto horses. And, and some of the most famous are like, uh, like uh, a Moonstar from the New Mutants has a winged horse named Brightwind uh, that she rides around on. Uh, so this is, this is maybe, well, not in the first appearance. The Black Knight that the Avengers fight uh, is, is in, this, in the mythos before this. But yeah, the, these winged horses appear quite frequently throughout Marvel continuity. So I have a question. He's not a mutant, right? But he thinks he is. He thinks he's a mutant, but he's not. He's just a magic asshole. So does he just call everybody mutants if they're not like <laughs> if they're not like a regular person? Because that's kind of the vibe I'm getting. Like, I'm a mutant, even though he's not. Like, these are mutant horses. And they're like, no, it's just science. he's using that word, but he doesn't quite know what it means. Yeah, that's the vibe I'm getting from this. Adam, do you want a winged horse with a horn? Always, yeah. I uh, I don't travel to many places these days, but if I if I did, my preferred mode of transportation would be winged horse with a horn. <laughs> and if I didn't have a horn, I'd feel shortchanged. <laughs> He's trying so hard to impress Gene. Like, look at my knights. Look at my magic planes. Look at my horses. Even though he's yeah. like mentally controlling her into being submissive which is just gross. It does feel very much like the purple man from Jessica Jones. Like it feels very much like, tell me you like this. Yes. It's really cool. Like he's, it's so creepy and gross. And he's like, like um, that creepy guy with the white van, except instead of a white van, it's white horses with wings. Yeah. <laughs> and also, <laughs> and also I brought your dad here so that he can <laughs> see how important I am to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So was him bringing professor X in, intentional like i'm trying to figure out why he would do that but maybe i'll ask this later after the ending because i want to i want to understand what his end game was because it didn't i mean spoilers <laughs> like we, we know that the x-men don't die here so like i just want to understand what his what he saw in his mind well let's ask the question now uh adam and justin what did you perceive why did he capture professor x first um i probably just because the plot necessitated Professor X being there. Um, but, you know, in, in, in the story, if he sensed that Gene was a powerful telepath or, you know, had, had, you know, superior mental powers, uh, but he, you know, he wanted, he coveted her. He probably sensed the same about Professor X and perceived him as a threat and brought him there to, you know, being, you know, as his prisoner to be incapacitated. Um, so that that is how I interpreted it at first glance. I mean, we're just told Professor X was working in his lab and then he suddenly found himself in this void. I think, I think Merlin probably recognized him as the biggest threat 
and just wanted <laughs> to take him off the board first. That's kind of the yeah. person I got. Like, look, I'm the more important uh, telepath. I've got the bigger brain. He was just comparing dicks with Professor X and saying mine's bigger. Yeah, I kind of got that vibe throughout the whole issue. Just him trying to prove prove he's more powerful, he's more superior. Just kind of that. What What did you guys think of his uh, his evil lair? <laughs> I think for the evil lair, there's that one henchman who's like, I don't care what's going on. I'm just here to get paid. <laughs> Honestly, relatable. <laughs> I, uh, he's, got, he's got knights with bows and arrows, but also like Tommy guns and like assault rifles. Uh, I love Professor X's little sky sled. I think it's adorable. He's like just zooming around on this little red mm-hmm. sled in the sky. I think it's cute. <laughs> the, little, the little red sled with Professor X too. There's like a panel like very last page just how he's sitting combined with the gray suit it's like bald Wee herman <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that's just the vibe i got from that i forgot what his catchphrase was but i just profess picture I, sorry i got tongue-tied there um picture professor x just saying whatever it is Wee says while riding that little bicycle sled thing <laughs> He's also got like a full underground river. It's like very Willy Wonka. Like it's it's a bizarre little base. Adam, did you like this base? I love this base. I am a big fan of of supervillain underground layers, and this has everything. It's underground. It's got a castle. It's got gun turrets. It's got uh, men in you know medieval armor, as we've said, and and, and automatic weapons. Um, and later in the issue, there's like, you know, there's a gladiator tournament pit, you know, and I, uh, in pre, in pre pandemic times, I would love going to, uh, uh medieval times. <laughs> so I'm trying to imagine going to medieval times and watching the X-Men <laughs> have it out there. It's all of this is truly delightful to me. For those uh, of you, for those of you that know this reference, Stefan from Saturday Night Live, I feel like this is one of those clubs yes. that you described. Like, it has everything. The yes. greatest oh. club has. Yes. <laughs> See the battle. The battle later on, I get full on Tournament of Kings, Las Vegas. Like, yes. go there and get a turkey leg. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Huzzah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm. I was very. I. I, I love it. There's some great uh, drawings of horses throughout the issue. We mentioned the the Pegasi, but um, as somebody who's drawn horses, they're not the most fun, but uh, <laughs> they're uh, they all look pretty great here. So you know, as one artist to another, I tip my cat, my cat, my cat. <laughs> Where's your cat? I want to see you tip your cat now. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'd be asking for so much trouble if I tried tipping my cat. <laughs> I mean, it would it would make great podcasting. That's for sure. As they um, uh, as they are entering the lair, uh, Warlock says to Professor X, "Come, Professor, and behold a sight that will dazzle even your Homo superior senses." I would just like to note that I also have Homo superior senses. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I think it's important to note. Nicely done. <laughs> um, as we jump to gr- page eight, we see Warlock very gropy with Jean, hands on shoulders, like tongue in her ear basically as he's like <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna show you my castle now and it's so gross Ugh. uh he takes a moment to mesmerize uh to mesmerize gene and uh and angel he makes angel think that his wings are on fire 
Uh, Angel's yeah. got to dive into the river to, to make sure he's protected. But we learned this is kind of Professor X's way of getting Angel away so that maybe he escapes that influence a little bit. Uh, what did you guys think of this uh, of this scene here? Um, with the art, um, I know this is kind of covered a little bit, but um, especially at the close-up of um, Warlock hypnotizing Angel, that eyebrow game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like... Um, this artist is really good at like capturing detail. Like you look at Warlock and you see like every little wrinkle and crease and um, yeah, even with Xavier, like again, strong eyebrow game. <laughs> Xavier, I, Xavier normally has the best eyebrows, but Warlock wins this competition in this issue. It's, it's, it's maybe the one contest that he is winning in this issue. And then yeah. like... They look like they're, you know, when you see somebody with like false eyelashes and they're way too thick, that's what it looks like to me in the middle. Cause like you can tell it how his eyebrow hairs have lift, like right. they come away from his face. Like maybe and, he had some still, eyebrow enhancement. Yeah, he found the time to do that between, you know, being asleep and and grabbing Jane. You know, he did but something. The stronger or the angrier Hulk gets, the stronger he gets. The creepier Warlock gets, the bigger his eyebrows grow. I think I, that's the. <laughs> I love the visual representation of that. I love on a uh, on page nine, we see him kind of turn away from Gene, and clearly his dentures have fallen out. His age is showing. <laughs> He's I... not looking his finest here. This is the old man desperately trying to hold on to his youth with the young redhead. Yeah, this is. Uh... This is one of those panels where you realize that Connery's too old to play Bond. <laughs> um, but it's, it's like it, it does like it stands apart from every other drawing of, of Warlock so far. It's just it's it's and it's a nice drawing, too, but it's just so much more decrepit than how he's portrayed everywhere else. I, I wanted to say that I don't think the cover for this issue does his outfit justice because it actually... It's not too bad here. Like it's, you know, it's orange on the cover. Here it's like a velvety burnt red. It's he's, he's got these like truffles or, or ruffles on this on the shoulders. Um and a nice and a nice collar. Like I uh, you know, like I, I I'm I'm very I'm into it. It looks it looks very comfortable. Um despite being maybe a little bit tight, but it's it probably feels amazing. We, uh, we get to see some close-ups of his collar and cape here, too. And there is a distinctive pattern. We get row after row. So it's like star moon, star moon, and then planet star, planet star. Repeat, yeah. repeat, repeat. It must have been very cumbersome to draw. Um, I wonder if this is pre-Lucky Charms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Warlock uh, leaves for a period of time, but he makes sure to roofie Jean first. He immobilizes her with his telepathy so that she can't possibly escape. Uh, and when he goes to check on Professor X, we see uh, Angel uh, holding Professor X saying he must have fallen and hit his head. Uh, and Professor X is effectively blocking Warlock from kind of reading his mind, which is a, a really smart thing to do, frankly. If you can't read his mind, at least block your own to uh, knock him off guard. And while he's pretending to be comatose, uh, Professor X that is, the other X-Men finally arrive. The spell has now pulled Angel, I'm sorry, Beast and Iceman and Cyclops into the scene uh, so that they can battle Warlock and try to save Jean, who has been telepathically roofied. Uh, <laughs> what were some of your thoughts on these interactions here? With Jean being um, kind of just put off to the side, um, 
and that that was just a yikes <laughs> it's just like you're just gonna be this pole here standing here i'm gonna go do my thing and then suddenly the other male x-men are just kind of pulled out of limbo like not the actual limbo but just somewhere <laughs> it was yeah. it was a little yikes yeah for sure very very convenient for the x-men to just show up i agree um i do i do i i do find that panel of Jean standing very autonomous to be pretty humorous i mean all of the <laughs> as negative as it is there's it's just it's just it's very silly to me um <laughs> Uh, but also, I, I admire uh, drawing people on the floor, lying down is like it's it's a hard thing to pull off and and, and difficult to convey. Uh, this panel, the panel on page nine here, does it very convincingly. Um, so again, another tip of my cat here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I it took me a while to. Uh, I remember when I first read this, I wasn't sure if he had a cap on his head or if he had like green streaks on his, you know, on, on the mane of, on the crest of his hair, but I guess it's a cap, right? It seems to be a cap, but it also doesn't seem to be there all the time. So maybe he's using his mental powers to make you think it's not there sometimes. Like, like he's covering a bald spot, maybe? It's a, I, that or I, it's a it's a little reminiscent of the serpent crown, which is like the Marvel artifact that people can wear to channel the Elder God set, and it makes them crazy super powerful. It reminds wow. me a little of the serpent crown. So it to me initially when I looked at it, it looked like he just unzipped the top of his head, and that's <laughs> what was there. That was like his brain, and I kind of want to believe that that's what happened. That that's what the hat does. I mean, the balding seems legitimate because if you look back in the flashback, he had a pretty luscious set of hair. <laughs> yeah, <He's> so <laughs> That's, gross. It is, it is diminished. <laughs> so Warlock is pissed. He immediately kind of mentally makes the X Men think they're stuck to the floor, and then Professor X kind of does like a duck season, rabbit season, rabbit season, duck season thing with him, and like makes him have the idea: I'm going to make the X Men go into a tournament and. If they win, then I'll call off my world domination plots. But if I win, then I'm going to take over the world. Uh, it's it's a it's a bizarre uh, <laughs> transition into a fight scene. This man does not seem like he would agree to that. So maybe Professor X is uh, working his magic a little bit under the radar here. <laughs> I was a little confused by that, just because like if you're the villain, wouldn't you just want to take over the world anyways? Like regardless of if. They win the tournament or not <laughs> he he's desperate to prove he's got again the biggest dick he wants to show all of the other boys that he is the bigger one and he's going to stomp them into the ground even though he will not fight himself <laughs> i'm going to make my my knights fight for me uh uh <laughs> justin do you want to take over uh pages 12 through 15 for us tell us what happens in the tournament so the tournament um basically beast is thrown in first um he's jabbed in the butt with a spear kind of like hey you get in there um, he tries to throw one of the henchmen at um, Warlock, but Warlock stops the guy from being thrown at him. And um, basically the rest of the X-Men come into the battle. Um, there's a knight on a horse who is charging at them. Um, Beast wants to take him on just because um, basically Warlock called him stupid. And from what I got from that, that kind of damaged Beast's ego a little bit. Um <laughs> Just breeding old beast in general. Um, not a fan. 
But I digress. Um, Beast takes out the guy with the javelin, but it's the guy with the javelin gun. Um, and um, more fighting happens. Um, Iceman basically knocks over some of the horses. Um, Beast manages to catapult onto the castle before Warlock throws him back. And Iceman creates a slide for him, and he slides back down to safety while um, the rest of the X-Men decide... Instead of attacking one at a time, everybody charge him at once. The uh, the beast is a little gay in the old comics, which is kind of funny. There's there's almost a comical scene where he gets hit in the in the rear end with a spear and, and immediately grabs a guy between the legs to flop him over his head. Which is, it's it's a bizarre little fight scene. We also get to see Warlock kind of parade Gene up to the front and and. Uh, he says, let me introduce you to my future queen. She shall be, who shall be the first empress of the first, first mutant empress of the earth, uh, which is kind of a cool title. I don't know if, uh, if it had worked out between Warlock and Jean, uh, she could have been a pretty impressive mutant empress. Did you guys have thoughts on this, uh, on this tournament scene? The spear with beast, um, an assault from an unexpected quarter. I guess we know he's the top. <laughs> <laughs> And um, next page, when Iceman creates um, the slide as well, just that's quite the pose. <laughs> um, <laughs> and one thing I noticed too with some of the older episodes about how when he ices up, he's naked. You can tell he's wearing boxers here. <laughs> and pants, because he has cuffs on the bottom of his pants. Unless those are the tops of his boots. That's true. Yeah. But all uh, in all, um, you know, it was a good fight scene. Um, Adam, did you enjoy the, uh, the the sequence of the battle here? I did. Um, it looked like a pain to draw. <laughs> but um, as I said before, some pretty excellent horse action throughout. Um, and characters like Beast, you know, very uh, bouncy and flexible and acrobatic characters. Uh, those are always a blast, uh, you know, to compose action scenes with. Um, I will say that throughout this issue, uh, Cyclops is used very sparingly. Um, you know what I mean? So I feel like that a lot more damage could have been done if he for, uh, was more in play, but I guess maybe that would end the tournament a little, uh, you know, a little more, uh, quickly. Um, but, um, I, you know, it was all really fun and, um, I always like it, uh, you know, I always, I, <clears throat> pardon me. Oh, I always like seeing Iceman in action. This is a very funny pose to see him in, um, <laughs> where he's kind of not really, it's hard, like, you know, like it, it's, it kind of mirrors, uh, there's a panel right next to it with Beast um, that the poses sort of mirror each other. And I'm, you know, I don't think that there's any deeper meaning for that but it is interesting to see side by side like maybe he used just the same reference <laughs> one you know one panel right after the next but um this is maybe the least exciting i've ever seen iceman in action just this particular panel here um but uh you know apart from that it's uh it's all very it's it tickles me it's all very neat Iceman and Cyclops don't get a lot to do here uh, in the tournament, which is crazy because they're pretty powerful. But Beast Beast tends to uh, to dominate in the action here. There's a panel where he throws a guy over his shoulder, and the sound effect is "biong" with an exclamation point, which is yeah, just amazing. 
We also get Beast, and maybe he does not realize that Jean is being mind controlled, but he wants to go give her a kiss in the tower, uh, which is- I made so, note of that. Which is so gross. Like she's already being roofied and he's like, let me go kiss her. And he calls her pulchritudinous, which is a big word for beautiful. Uh, it's, it's gross. Gabriella, <laughs> thoughts as the resident woman in the room? <laughs> um, yes, you are correct. It's gross. Um, <laughs> I, I got the heebie-jeebies so bad when I was reading this part. Um, yeah, it's real creepy. I will say also one thing that I like that I also don't like, which I'll explain, is on page, what page is this? Um, sorry, my thing won't go away. Uh, page 13. Um, when she, when he's like, oh, this is going to be the Empress, the uh, Splendid of Emperor Guinevere, whatever, and he's like presenting her, she's like legit not smiling. Like, he, she's like, I'm honored, but like, you can tell she's already kind of starting to break out a bit, and I really kind of like that because I will say this I liked that she did something in this which you see a couple pages from now she saves them by um by fixing them or by saving them from like falling debris right before she faints right before <laughs> she faints but she still did it you can't blame her for fainting those that costume is really tight she probably can't breathe um no I'm just kidding but um I I did like that you could sort of tell she wasn't as into it because like looking on page 16 and the facial expression that she has when she's following him is like much different than the facial expression when she, he turns away from her and he looks super old like at that part she looks like super into him like creepy gross but like very much like my clothes are on the floor kind of and like at this point though at that like, towards the end she's like yeah, I don't really know about this. And I, I kind of like that. I like that it was subtle. Warlock grabs her hand and rushes off. Kind of, He's ready to get to safety with her, but also I think she's a little bit of his human shield. Uh, he's still trying to impress her, calling her names like, my dear, uh, I'm still going to impress you. But the X-Men are chasing him down. Uh, there are weapons being launched at them as he keeps Gene hostage. And they use kind of some impressive skills to, to launch the weapons back. Iceman creates like a curved ice slide. Uh, Angel uses his wings to kind of narrowly save the professor. Uh, and uh, and Warlock is kind of finally cornered uh, where Professor X can finally try to get him with his brain. Uh, any thoughts on pages 16 and 17 here from uh, from Justin or Adam? Um, you. One word, splang. He's <laughs> <laughs> running into those bars. <laughs> um, going back to his creepy comments, like, it is kind of in character for him, just looking at some of the older issues and some of the stuff he said to Gene previously. Um, again, I know it is of the time, but, you know, again, um, seeing him kind of run into the bars, it was like, hee hee hee. But yeah, the weapons too. Um, like I said, you do get some good showings from Beast and Iceman using their powers. And, um, we actually do get to see Iceman do something just because there are a lot of times where it's like, Angel, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> and Adam, how about you? I, um, I was very tickled by, uh, 
you know, I, Warlock explains this away by saying, you know, the greatest generals know when to make a strategic retreat. Like I'm not running for my life. And this is all, this is all according to a grand plan. You see, like always, you know, kind of has an excuse for, for everything. You know what I mean? Like this is, this Warlock guy is kind of a bum that you realize as, as the story goes on. Um, so, and I also found it interesting how maybe he wants Jean for her powers as much as like he might desire her in other ways, because I think here it's explicit that he's actually using, like, you know, siphoning her ability for his own, for his own use. Um, and, um, you know, so I think that, that I, I like that. Um, here, again, it's just another instance where like, you know, Cyclops, you know, becomes very, very handy uh, breaking through the gate. Um, I am very amused by uh, just, you know, uh, the you know, pocket-sized projectiles packed with economy-sized explosives. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just so specific. Um, and that you'd think that by the time you said that mouthful, they'd hit you already, but... Um, but it is like again, you see Iceman in a more convincing pose here, using his abilities, uh, so that he's looking a lot better here than he did on, on the previous couple pages. Um, but I, I, you know, I again, I'm, I'm, I'm very amused by all of this. I'm loving it. Sixties are great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we get to page eighteen, we see Professor X kind of finally removing himself from Warlock's control, but Warlock is not letting Xavier into his thoughts, and Xavier is not letting Warlock into his thoughts, uh, and so Warlock lashes out by destroying a giant tower of stone and trying to collapse it on the X Men. But luckily, Jean breaks out of his control just at that moment and uses her telekinesis to save them before she promptly faints, which she is most famous for <laughs> out of all characters. It's almost, this is like her most fainty pose too. She, she's just like slowly sinking. We've got the, uh, the, the Southern Belle hand on the forehead almost <laughs> that she just tips over. Uh, but I am, I, I am with you, Gabrielle. I'm glad she got to save the day. At least she got one shining moment here instead of just being the object of the villain's affections. Yeah, she saved them from rubble. It's not a lot, but you know, could have really hurt. Um, um, I okay. So can I just say one more thing about this page? Um, really quick, I have to say one more disability thing. Earlier, when he was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna watch the tournament," Professor X is revealed to have a walking suit on inside of his regular suit, so he can walk alongside like. Um, the warlock and gene up on the top of the castle i don't know castle parts so i don't know what that is but up on the walkway where they all were and um in this scene inexplicably angel is holding him and i don't understand why i don't understand why he could walk five minutes ago and now he's like being helpless i don't know if it was like an inconsistency thing like they forgot i don't i just i noticed it and i was really bothered I believe, and I was going to bring this up at the end, I believe this is the final appearance of Professor X's mechanical walking leg braces. He, uh, he's, he's had them on in three previous issues. He can walk until they break, and then he can't walk anymore. Uh, and it's kind of weird. It's almost like the artist forgot that he could walk. And then the yeah, writer had to be like, hey, we got to explain this. 
That's what I'm thinking. Or I wonder if they didn't include it earlier. Like they didn't purposefully include it earlier, but they noticed that he was walking around and they were like, oh shit, we gotta like come up with a reason. And the page before he'll mention it, but like later on, he's very obviously being held by somebody else. So I don't really, I just, you know. I don't, I don't like his mechanical legs. I don't either, but if you're going to use them, use them. You know, mm-hmm. this would be a time to use them. I don't know. No, fair enough. Uh, uh, Adam and Justin, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I made note of the mechanical legs too, and it just kind of seemed like an afterthought. Um, I guess convenient plot device legs. <laughs> but more, more so uh, what Gabriella said, it seemed like it was an oversight. And I definitely see where the issue was with that. Uh, Adam, are you willing to tell us on page 19 how they finally defeat the warlock? Um, well, it's uh, he gets zapped by Cyclops and then pantsed by Beast. <laughs> <laughs> it's as simple as that. I wanted to say on the previous page, I really like uh, one of the panels where it's um, the profiles of Professor X and the warlock sort of facing each other off in a mental space. Like, I love the the... the the red background with the um, the black framing, um, that really is uh, was eye catching for me, <clears throat> um, and just a really excellent drawing of a goatee. <laughs> um, so I'm a big fan of that. Uh, but um, yeah, so Jean Grey, she uh, she's just saved the X Men from a tower crumbling on to onto them. Uh, promptly faints. Uh, it just was so taxing. Um, and in that moment, Cyclops, <laughs> Cyclops uh, hits Warlock with an eye beam, and it's, there's this really excellent zap sound effect, which I would love on a T-shirt. Um, <laughs> just top-notch stuff. Um, and it, you know, like it's it doesn't completely impair the Warlock. Amazingly enough, <laughs> like you, he kind of looks like Cyclops blue dust in his eyes. Um, and uh, it's at that moment, though, where Beast takes his cape, <laughs> jumps over him, and it yanks the cape over, <laughs> over Warlock's head, <laughs> and then carpet bags him. <laughs> it's really good stuff. <laughs> oh. And then Professor X mentally zaps him back <laughs> into his coma. Like, he's, uh, he's out. Yeah, like a bird. <laughs> <laughs> Iceman, uh, Iceman ices up all the guards. Uh, Professor X gives a, a speech about how, you know, we have to remember Factor 3 is still out there. And then something happens between the second and third panel on the final page. Warlock is all wrapped up like a mummy. They're carrying him away. Professor X is back in his adorable little sky sled. His ties blowing in the wind. Uh, and the <laughs> X-Men are all rushing back into battle as Cyclops and Jean think still for like the 30th time in a row like does he like me oh i have to tell dean someday that i like her it just goes on for years uh what what were your thoughts on how this issue wrapped up it felt a little rushed to me i absolutely see justin's peewee herman (laughs) 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 oh and another another pretty fantastic iceman pose He's, yeah, he's doing his squat. He's squatting. It's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm having a lot of fun with this final image. Uh, Obviously, things get wrapped up pretty nicely. Um, And (laughs) 
uh, as you mentioned, wrapped up like a mummy, even though, you know, mummies and sarcophagi are not a part <laughs> of, uh, you know, of English lore. Oh, very good. It's, uh, it's delicious. Uh, Justin, what were your thoughts? I'm just wondering what they do with Warlock's body after this, because next issue, we get something completely different. So it's just, again, like kind of up in the air. Um, definitely villain of the week type deal. Um, I do love how in this era too, um, Warlock gets taken out by his cape, but there, there's been other times too where people get taken out by their own clothing or there was another one where Jean got taken out by her own hair. So it's just the consistency with that is just top notch. <laughs> I love it and I'm kind of living for it. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much where I'm iffy on is just what happens to Warlock next. But so, you did mention he appears again. Yeah, we on. get to see him next in the X-Men, actually, in the original run. So he'll he'll next appear in X-Men number 47, which we'll get to. It'll just take us a while. Uh, he comes back as the Mahayogi and fights Beast and Iceman in the future. Um, uh, there's there's a great issue uh, or series of comics with him as the villain in Peter David's Captain Marvel series when it's Genus Vell behind the mask. Uh, look it up. It's it's a it's kind of a fun beat, and he's deliciously campy there as well. Uh, he is not my favorite villain, but uh, every time he shows up, I just want to punch him in the face. <laughs> I, <laughs> sympathize, another... I sympathize with a lot of villains, not this guy. Another thing I do got to point out that we don't see a lot of is subterranean villains. You don't see a lot of people going underground anymore. No, it's true. The mole man kicked them all out. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, at the bottom, at the bottom of the page, we get uh, we get the promise of uh, the X Men facing the Cobalt Man next issue. Let me hear some of your thoughts on the cover for uh, X Men number thirty one when we get there. I like that as he and Iceman because they look kind of the same, even though they're not. I yeah, like yeah. that they I like that they're like visually very reminiscent of each other. They're not like super costumey, but they're colorful. I do like the dynamic colors too. Like you got the red and the yellow, like right in the middle, really highlighting like Cobalt Man as the center focus, along with the beam too. Yeah, I um, I could easily mistake this for Iron Man. Um, mm -hmm. I uh, I'm not very up to snuff on Cobalt Man, so I could you know. Without knowing much more, I could assume that this is like, you know, uh, uh, one of Iron Man's suits that somebody's stolen for themselves and is using for nefarious purposes. Um, you're, actually, you're actually not far off. Iron Man makes an appearance in the next issue. Aha! Uh -huh. Well, all right then. I feel pretty smart. Um, I do. I like that there's you know, <clears throat> a very uh, uh, understated backhand to Cyclops' face going on in this is like the focal point is the hand generating the beam but as he's doing that he uh he knocks cyclops right back with the back of his fist and that's pretty funny it's uh it's it's a kind of a delightful issue it's one of my favorite <laughs> of roy thomas's run actually as we uh as we wrap up today uh first of all let me just say what an absolute blast spending a couple of hours with the three of you just nerding out on world comics and comic <laughs> books in general this is so fun 
Uh, I, I love that I get to create time for this in my life. Uh, so thank you all for spending your afternoon slash evening with me. Uh, where can each, uh, where can people find you guys online and anything that you'd like to plug as far as what you are working on or what people have to look forward to? Let's go Gabriella, Justin, and then Adam. Sure. Um, I have a blog called The Girl Who Sits and I am on social media everywhere as The Girl Who Sits. Um, I am putting a hold on everything right now, though, because I am taking the bar exam in February. So I will not be super active, but I will be there. So if anybody wants to follow me or message me or talk about X-Men or whatever, that'd be super cool because that means I don't have to study for however long I talk to you. So, (laughs) um, yeah, that's where I'm at. We're going to miss you, Gabriella. Oh, thanks. I wanted to thank you for having me. It was great um, talking to some people about comics. Um, Like um, a while ago, I used to be on the comic forums. Um, I definitely fell off with that. Um, Right now, you can mainly catch me on Instagram. I mostly just post there. Um, My username is J underscore cosmic, um, K-O-S-M-I-C. Um, I do do a lot of cosplaying. Um, well, I could be doing more, <laughs> but it's something I'd like to get back into um, more prominently, especially as of next year, just because there are a few good ideas that I'd like to see executed. Um, again, thank you for having me. It was really nice um, talking about, you know, comics. So happy to have you here and follow Justin's cosplay. It's really fun and campy and uh, and there's a lot of places he draws from, but it's also really sexy and hot. So keep up the great work, Justin. Oh, stop. Don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and Adam, go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> I'm online a whole bunch, perhaps too much. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. My handle for both are or is uh, at Adam T. Gorham, G-O-R-H-A-M. Uh, I post a lot of art, a lot of process stuff. Um, and on Twitter, I, you know, like to imagine ideal junk foods, I, ideas and tweet those out. Uh, <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, and then as far as what I'm up to, uh, <clears throat> today we're recording this on a Wednesday and, uh, the latest issue of my ongoing series, the blue flame from vault comics issue six is out today. It's my last thing to come out in in the year of 2021 um and that'll be continuing on to issue 10 so you can you know there's still time to uh you know join uh, the adventure um as well as next year i'll have a uh, a special a godzilla comic that i've be, i'll be making my writing debut and then i'm also drawing um and then a few other things that i cannot yet announce but you know follow me and in time all will be revealed I can't wait to hear what you have coming out and I will, uh, I will follow eagerly. Adam, I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, Thank you for having me. This was a real treat. So I, uh, I, I really enjoyed this. I'm so glad you had fun. That's uh, that's the key to success for me is if people are having a good time, but uh, not only, not only do I love your art, but it's great to get to know you and to befriend you a little bit. Uh, Justin and Gabriella, major respect to both of you. I consider you both friends. It's so uh, fun to have you here. Uh, my name is Chad. You guys can follow me. My, my own social media is private because I got kids, but you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter under Gray Malkin uh, Lane or Gray Malkin PP like podcast. I'm regularly posting content from these issues. And I am astounded at the response coming up on the podcast. We have uh, so many incredible things coming. 
I uh, I almost just want to post a whole list of everything that's coming up in the next uh, 12 to 16 weeks. There is, uh, I have heard from some of my childhood heroes. There are names coming up that I never, ever imagined I would be interfacing with. So uh, I, I am flummoxed and excited. Now, for our next uh, a couple of episodes, we're going to be taking a break from the X-Men series and doing some side issues uh, like we did uh, with the Tales of Suspense issue last week. Uh, next week, when you catch us, we're going to be uh, reviewing Fantastic Four Annual Number 3, which is the wedding of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman, in which the X-Men appear. It is probably the quintessential 60s Marvel book. If you had to choose just one, it's insane and it's so much fun. And uh, we're going to be thrilled to have the incredible writer Jim Zob joining us. Uh, Jim has done some really iconic work at Marvel. Uh, the list is far too long to, to name, but uh, X-Men books and otherwise. Uh, and I'm thrilled to be able to sit down with Jim next week. Uh, so watch for us. We will see you guys back here on Grey Moth and Lane uh, next time. Gabriella, Justin, Adam, thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and we'll see you guys soon. Thank so you. Long.